This is episode 245 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled Education in Prison with Peter Folks. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I am so pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today. I've got Peter Folks with me of the Cerro Coso Community College. So welcome to the show, Peter. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. We're going to talk about higher education in prison. And Cerro Coso has a really interesting program uh, that they've been working on for a while, and Peter leads that effort. So we're going to talk about that today. And let me start by introducing him. He's the department chair and professor of administration of justice for Cerro Coso Community College and the director of public services. He received a BS in criminal justice with Alpha Phi Sigma honors, then followed his dream into local law enforcement in a progressive department in Southern California later receiving the MADD MAD California Hero Award in 2013 and other accolades. Injured in the line of duty, he changed careers and pursued a master's degree where he studied the impacts of social media on high-profile law enforcement events and enhancing community engagement. I, after I read that, I thought we could probably spend a whole hour talking about, talking about yeah, that. Certainly. <laughs> After 18 months in corporate asset protection executive team leadership, he left to pursue true action where the bottom line was social progress, not corporate dividends. In higher education, he found a liking of instruction and anthropagogy, meanwhile discovering a true passion in educational program development for social good. For the last seven years, Peter has been a leading faculty in the development of Cerro Coso Community College Incarcerated Students Education Program, a national leader in face-to-face prison higher education, focusing heavily on professional development structures, decolonizing of educational practices, and centering the work on student outcomes instead of recidivism. Peter is a quantitative analysis nerd that thrives on achieving clear, measurable outcomes. He loves the outdoors and spending time with his family in the woods. His doctoral work focuses on scalability of publicly funded HEP, higher education in prison programming and student outcomes as a functional reintegration model. So yeah, I was thinking when I was reading your background, and he is like the perfect person to do this work. <laughs> yeah, your background's just perfect for it. Yeah, it, uh, it sort of fell into place. And and we've had to utilize some, you know, everybody that I work with in a, in our kind of small core implementation team, we, uh, we all have different backgrounds that sort of we balance off of each other for what the different tasks at hand is. So certainly has helped us uh, get to where we are at. Yeah, really nice. Well, I just think it's such an interesting program. Um, So I've just got a bunch of questions for you here, and here's one that's kind of specific, but I was uh, curious about it. How do most inmates use the program? Like, what do they study and what do they like? Certainly. So um, they actually like my program a lot. Uh, Administration of Justice um, is our school's title for it. Um, It's sort of comprehensively addressing justice topics. Um, It's not just focused on like criminal justice itself, um, but that's probably the closest uh, parody at any other college would be a criminal justice degree. Um, And so uh, when I went in the first time, uh, I took till the end of the first semester, 2017, the spring of 2017. And then my students actually served me with a letter that they wanted the degree uh, so that they enjoyed my 101 class, but that they really wanted to pursue the degree. And that kind of kicked off what the pursuit of our program has been, which is about creating the closest model to a regular college education that we can inside of a prison. 
So we have about 1,500 face-to-face students, which is the largest program in the nation right now. Wow. There's a lot of other very good programs, but through a lot of specific program efforts that are directly tailored to students themselves versus uh, to us as an institution, that's been our goal is to give the students everything that they want. So we have seven degree pathways, uh-huh, nice. all of which are uh, transfer degrees. Um, they're all based on what what's called the IGETSI pathway, which is the intergovernmental, it's the intersegmental transfer curriculum pathway for general education. So it's the most transferable courses that we have to go to a UC or a CSU. Nice. And then we add on top of that varying degrees, which is really only about four classes at the AA level. Mm-hmm. And so we've expanded that based on student interest. So things like they wanted English, they wanted math, business administration, anthropology, history, um, and administration of justice. And so those are some of the the most desired areas of education. And we kind of came from a social science perspective first, so that they would have the most opportunity to transfer into the most amount of degrees, if that makes sense. So no, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Maximize. Yeah, we didn't want to pigeonhole them um, with just a few different types of degrees that were really terminal. That's basically been an ongoing conversation with the student body uh, inside the multiple facilities and with our honors program, who sort of lead as peer mentors, peer leadership throughout the student body. That's So that's how we decide some of the impetus of why they take courses. It, it's really up to each person. We've looked at things like non-cognitive factors, hope and grit, perseverance. Those components seem to be very high. So the people that have the most desire to make their own self-improvement, this program is a voluntary option that's offered inside. There's a lot of other programs that are not voluntary, for instance, like GED or high school diploma programs called adult basic ed. So once somebody is either they've already completed it on the outside before they were incarcerated or they complete it while inside, then they can opt into our program. And it's the same enrollment criteria as essentially at that point, it's the same enrollment criteria as out on the streets, the same. So uh, people just opt in, they get on a waiting list to which we have a nice solid waiting list for a lot of the different facilities. And then, you know, then they get enrolled in, we have a pathway that they enter so that at any point in time, within two years, they can graduate with that degree. So we've used that sort of strategic, I guess, or it's like surgical precision to offer these programs so that there's nothing extraneous. It's not a cafeteria program where you just pick a bunch of electives. It has a purpose to complete a degree. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what our students like the most about at least our program compared to um, some of the work we do is with the 19 other colleges in the state. We sort of lead this consortium informally. It's an informal consortium, but it's a legitimate, it's called the Rising Scholars Network in California Community Colleges. So we lead that. And by demonstrating like as a model, this is what we're capable of doing as a system is is kind of correcting these historical issues and problems that exist in incarceration. Gosh, it's really fascinating. I mean, some of the things you've mentioned are really courses more for, I don't know, intellectual development, you know, history, anthropology, English. I might have thought that there would be a tendency to go more for things that had more of a technical aspect, maybe nursing or or or, or maybe even, you know, law enforcement. <laughs> I don't know. So enlighten me about that. Certainly. So my division, um, public services, even though we have a a degree that's an what we might call an academic, you know, I put in air quotes, an academic degree. We also have career technical education, right? Which is kind okay. of the area of vocational training, like you're talking about. There is a school district that exists inside of our state prison system. Um, oh. It's called the Correctional Education. And so they are the ones tasked with providing vocational training. Oh. Uh, community colleges, the Senate bill that allowed from the from the state that allowed us to go into there, it w- specifically did not allow us to subplant the other state funding. Yeah, makes sense. So we would go in and, and do something that was already being done. We had to create a new pathway. And that idea was the more academic education that's offered actually results, the the data demonstrates that there's more of an impact on recidivism in reducing recidivism than there is in vocational training. Wow. Yeah. And part of that is a matter of most vocational training is run by the prison itself. So it has a very different feel, I guess you could say, um, a different aura. It's coming from a different place, uh, yeah. right? And so ours is coming from much more of a... Um, 
higher education, uh, access, quality education, rigor, those components of true academic education versus vocational, which is also important, but they fulfill different roles. Yeah, yeah. We've seen a huge change inside just from the first semester I walked on to now. Our prison yards, which we have three prisons, we have two structural prisons and one fire camp, but there's seven different yards total. So each one uh, security yards, you can't cross over. So somebody's on high security, can't come to low security. So essentially we had to replicate this seven times inside of these facilities. Oh, so it's seven right. degrees, but in seven different places. Right. Um, it's it's like a multi-site campus, which is what we are as a school anyway. So mm-hmm. we sort of adopted that idea. If I took you inside right now, like if you came down and visited, it would feel more like a college campus than a prison oh. on some of students are sitting out, they're talking in the yard, they're gardening. I got offered a zucchini the other day. Ah, nice. <laughs> and it wasn't anything fallacious. It was a, it was a literal zucchini that they were growing in the garden, which wasn't there before. And I have to walk around these buildings to get to my class because if I walk through the, the prison yard, like the open area, I'm going to get stopped with like, hey, professor, what about this? Hey, professor. And it's so much like a college campus that it just amazes me now. It's just a very different world. So that has had this weird impact on our yard. We're like, we're the coolest gang inside is to be part of college. It's so cool. (laughs) We're the college students. (laughs) Yeah, That's hilarious. Okay. So tell me why they're interested in the justice degree. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of dreaming up reasons why that might be interested. Like, how did this happen to me or what the heck is going on with this system? But but yeah, you tell me, what, why are the students interested in that? I think that the ones that are most interested in, in self-improvement and opt into like the program, they see that that their lived experience can, they can use that. They don't have to ignore oh. the fact that they went to prison, right? So they look at it and they go, well, what can I do with all the experience you know, lived experience that I've had. Mm. We talk about people coming back as counselors, people working in nonprofits, whether it's justice reform and other things. So I think a part of it is a little bit, there's a lot of ah ahas that go on Mm. during it. And I don't go in to provide a, look, this is the man and you must obey kind of an approach to the curriculum. It's really like, this is the structural things that you probably never learned about. And a lot of other people haven't either. Mm -hmm. Like my 101 is really an eighth grade civics course. Yeah. There are people that just don't understand the components of our structural governmental system, right? Mm -hmm. And when you look at things like conflict theory and stuff with the haves and the have nots, and you you think about, well, what do people do who have no idea how to navigate the system? Mm -hmm. They're they're in conflict with the system then all the time. And so those Mm -hmm. are are the kind of things I think the basic theoretical components really get them jazzed. Mm -hmm. And then we get into, we've converted our courses to be more responsive in curriculum to the folks that are inside and on the outside. So like we used to have a community policing class. That class is now multiculturalism in the American justice system. So we look at the different experiences of different ethnicities across America and their interaction with the justice system over time. Um, and so I think stuff like that has driven they like it because I, I like them and they like me as an instructor. But then also they like it because we've gone through painstaking efforts to continue to adjust the curriculum mm-hmm. in a more progressive format that matches what the real world is. Mm-hmm. We're not teaching outdated stuff. Um, but of course, also, if you're inside and you're stuck in there <laughs> and you mm-hmm. got no way out, learning about the legal aspects of evidence and reflecting on what happened in your case is very interesting, right? Yeah. So I think there's self-interest component mm-hmm. as well as um, there's a structural component that they like. Mm-hmm. That's my own take on it. I'm sure my students might say something slightly different, but mm-hmm. we've had a lot of ongoing talks with them about it. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Also, you know, I have to think it's really smart of them to think, how can my lived experience contribute to this? A lot of the students that come out of there, I have students who have been very successful. They're transferred to four-year schools. We assist with that kind of placement too. And then also they've gotten out and they've started jobs. They now work in justice reform nonprofits and things like that. They're going to law school. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of very interesting success stories that have come out of it after the, you know, literally thousands of students I've been able to teach over the last seven years or so um, that have come out of that. So it's very interesting to see how it's changed the trajectory of where people go. And likewise, it's changed my own trajectory in my own career. Um, uh-huh. So it's it's kind of like we've both learned from each other. Yeah. So I have to ask you, the audience can't see you, uh, but I can. And you're wearing a big badge. Oh, yes. And also a giant. Uh, I want one of those, actually. <laughs> 
<laughs> this th- that pin that says instructor, yes. <laughs> which is really cool. But yeah, so tell me about the badge. So tonight I'm wearing a different hat, literally tonight. And that is uh, that I'm the director of the police academy that we have. So we have a part-time and weekends police academy uh, at our school, uh, which is on the outside. I don't wear this typically. I just, I'm at class early so that I could do this call, but that's what I'm wearing tonight because I have to I'm just, I, I wear a lot of different hats. Yeah, on literally. In, yeah. So I'm, I'm involved in, um, as the police academy director for our cadets that are here at the school. And I help guide that program and hire, you know, instructors. And I teach as well in the academy. So sometimes I'll come out of a maximum security prison yard, you know, throw a sandwich in my mouth on the way on the drive over to campus. And now I'm teaching in a police academy setting. Uh, it's just a very, I like the tension that exists uh, between those two things um, in my mind. And I don't think I could ever have a normal job again. Um, I never really have had a normal job, but I think that having experienced all these different things, there's no way I could just sit down and and do an office job anymore. (laughs) It's too cool. Well, I mean, all those different hats really do reflect the fact that you really are kind of a perfect person for this because you see these issues, you know, from different perspectives, right? I mean, yeah. I, I'm glad yeah. that you enjoy it and it doesn't just make you schizophrenic or something. <laughs> I, it's important to take breaks. So I like to take my summers. And I like to take my winter, um, you know, the time off that school has. I try not to go all in all the time, but I go all in really hard for fall semester and then turn around and do it again in spring. And then I like to take my time. And I think that cadence works with like me as a person, you know, sort of a, it's a bit of a rhythm throughout the year. Like you mm. cycle up and then you cycle down. Um, in workload, in thought, and in all those other kinds of things. Um, I definitely relax. I have to relax a lot to counter always going and doing um, these other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about the logistics of the program. Are the courses online? Do the students meet as a group? Are all of them instructor-led or do they sometimes have classes that they manage themselves. There are now study groups and there are peer mentored groups with Phi Theta Kappa Honor Society that's inside. Uh, So we have a chapter that's on the outside with our traditional students. We have the same chapter, but the second half of that chapter exists inside of prison. About three quarters of our students qualify for the honor society on the inside. Wow. Very, very high success rates. We're working on research for that, but there's been some research published on it that we've assisted with as well uh, in this state specifically where it kind of came to scale quickly. So we offer what most people could imagine would be just a traditional college classroom inside of a prison. It's everybody's wearing, you know, blue pajamas kind of a thing uh, in our classes it's just a normal classroom. Um, people come in. It's it's normally held inside of one of the education rooms. Um, but I've taught as you know in a janitorial closet literally before to uh-huh. fit enough students in to see you know all the different space. I've taught in the cafeteria, in the gym, all in these different locations that we had to kind of elbow our way through the prison system to find mm-hmm. the space before we became structured. Once we were kind of like a structural component of our local prisons, who have been great partners with us, we've been able to get more classroom space. So we have anywhere between 15 and 35 students in a class. So pretty standard type of classroom. Mm -hmm. Got some larger lecture classes, but in our prison classrooms, because of who we teach and the different age range, it's also, you might not be able to recognize it as a traditional lecture-based class because it's really driven us as faculty um, as the instructors to really to the edge of what we can do inside the classroom in terms of like our teaching practices. Hmm. So that's like, there's a lot of little threads that you could pull out on here that I could talk forever on probably. Uh-huh. But one of those things has been the real change that we've made to our teaching practices to respond to what goes on in the classroom, to the fact that you have people that are 35 in your class and not just one, you know, it's, it's four to 10 people that are not just out of high school. So you get a very different student experience when, when you're interacting. And so that's, that's just driven our classrooms to become very community centered. We go off Paolo Freire, who's a pedagogue about involving community, co-learning with students, and that it isn't all a top-down approach. And so that's what we mean when we say like a decolonization is most people don't want to sit in a lecture-based classroom either. But that structure, the traditional Mm -hmm. pedagogy comes from sort of the start, the impetus of American education, which was you have this 
person who holds all the power in the classroom, holds all the all the knowledge, right? And that they're banking it with you. They're making deposits into your bank. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a kid, I remember that exact phrase being used in my classrooms, uh, that the teacher has all the they, they essentially have this investment fund and they're investing in us with these little bits of knowledge in the way that we're structuring our classes. Now we're really not restricting the access to the information. We're able to say, Hey, here's what we have. You're going to teach us about chapter five, week six, you know, and you're going to teach about this. Um, and there's a lot of discussion that goes on within the classrooms to kind of create this new approach to the way that we come out. So we have 57 faculty that go inside the prison right now. Oh my gosh. And it's a lot. There's classes running as I speak. There's classes running tomorrow. There's Friday night classes. There's weekend classes. We we take any opportunity we can to go inside to teach a class and to teach it according to our kind of degree pathway. So when we come up with a bottleneck, like we need a foreign language, we have a five-hour Spanish class on Saturdays now um, that's totally packed out. Because oh a bunch of people were bottlenecked at the foreign language requirement, you know, and we're trying to can we're trying to like apply this very hard, rigid structure of mm-hmm. higher education into a, another hard, rigid structure that mm-hmm. doesn't make space for it. So, so that's what happens with our normal classrooms. But if you came in and on any random day, the only difference would be the students look a little bit older. They they have a couple more tattoos, most likely, and uh, <laughs> maybe maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> We're all wearing blue. And really, when you're in a classroom, we've had the news come out. We've had different article and establishments come out to write articles on us. And mm-hmm. th- the common thing is, this is the most normal thing I've ever seen, mm-hmm. you know, is what they say. And, and they're mostly surprised about how normal it feels when you're inside of even a high secu- the maximum security facility with 30 guys who... 30 people wouldn't congregate anywhere else in that facility, except oh. for in a college classroom. It's very interesting. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was also struck. I wanted to circle back to that. You said they finish in two years. So that's a full-time load. And then I was curious, like, how hard is that? I mean, I, you know, I don't know very much. So how hard is that for them to fit in to their daily activities? Is it easy or is it, is it actually kind of hard? It's actually pretty hard there. And that was a great way of uh, asking the question because a lot of people will make some, well, they have nothing else to do, right? So they- well, Yeah, I kind of but, don't think that's true, yeah. No. <laughs> um, we've, had a, we've had to address sort of that perception issue throughout the program when we go. And if we're not talking in the educational circles, but we're out in like the public policy circles, because they're small cities and everybody has a job. Very few people don't have a job. Mm-hmm. So from the policy perspective, we've actually had to advocate I sit on, uh, I actually just cycled off, but for six years, I sat on the steering committee for all of this with the Department of Corrections headquarters and the chancellor's office for the state of California community college system. And we've actually had to advocate to get a special assignment made for people who want to take a full-time student load, mm-hmm. uh, 12 to 15 units. And and that unit load has been helpful in allowing students to be able to carve out the time so that if they take class in the day, they probably have a night job. Like they work in the kitchen at nighttime or they do laundry at nighttime, that kind of a thing. And then if they work during the day, they probably take classes at night. So for us, we've really had to be kind of manage our pathway scheduling. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might have, I might teach the same class on the same yard twice in one day. And in the morning, it's for the people that work at night and night it's for the people that work during the day. Those are the kind of modifications we've had to make to scheduling that actually translated back to our main campus. So our school that has its own six campuses now schedules based on what we had to do in the prison so that we could better serve students. Mm -hmm. Because on main campus, we were I mean, back in 2015, 2016, our average completion was six years with 90 units. Hmm. AA degree is 60 units. So people were taking a lot of additional units they didn't need, which cuts into their Pell Grant eligibility when they transfer to a four-year. You can only transfer 77 units. So then you start burning, you know, the ability to get your full education when you go, if you transfer off to a four-year degree. So what we had to do is kind of like go through this surgical chopping process process and cut out everything that didn't make sense so that we would just deliver only the pathway. And that's been one of the kind of successes of it is we've been able to demonstrate outside of it just being called prison education, just in education in general, we've created these recurring pathways where we can get people in and out between 18 months and two years if they're taking classes over the summer and people are getting degrees. So Mm -hmm. at this rate, about 40% of the degrees that we might issue in a semester 
come from prison for our entire college. Whoa. It's, it's huge impact. Yeah. It's and we have our degree, what we call conferral, like award conferrals, has just increased substantially over the last six years of this program happening when we've come to scale. Um, and that's what we're trying to demonstrate to the other colleges across the U.S. and across the state. Dang, that's amazing. Well, OK, so I have to ask this question, even though I think I didn't think of it before. How does the community college get reimbursed for all that work? Right. Right. And so this is also one of those different things. In 2014, California passed a Senate bill called 1391 uh, by Senator Hancock. What they did is they worked with the correctional department. So CDCR was part of it. And it has a bunch of like really cool background. It's, it's basically a one page policy shift that removed the restriction for teaching incarcerated folks from the California, what's called the Cal Promise Grant. Um, oh, it used yeah. to be called a Board of Governors waiver. So if someone can't afford college on, on the street, in the regular free world, we can get college covered for them. Uh -huh. Well, inside of prison facility, most people are making 37 cents an hour when they're working. So they're always going to qualify, essentially, uh -huh. for a financial aid. So they qualify under the state's financial aid and apportionment, which is the way the state funds community colleges. Mm. In uh, K-12, it might be called like butts and seats kind of funding, right? The amount of mm -hmm. butts that are in the seat. We have a performance-based metric where that accounts for some of it. But we also have to demonstrate that we're actually issuing degrees and yeah. that people are, you know, that we're reaching marginalized populations that maybe we didn't typically before. Mm -hmm. So it means we have to turn this machine on at our school that says, OK, we have to like maximize and optimize everything for these students so that we can get that appropriate funding back. Mm -hmm. Because I'm just a regular full time instructor. Tomorrow I could say I don't want to teach in the prison anymore and I'll just continue to teach online. I'll teach on ground at my regular traditional campus. Mm -hmm. So for us, we've tried to integrate it as a component of the whole school so that people teach in, in all varieties of these kinds of what we call modalities, like the different way in which we're teaching, be it in prison, online, on ground, that kind of stuff. So it's just part of our full load. And that's the way it works is that through this very simple little bill. It was pushed through over Thanksgiving weekend, huh. 2014. It was just like one of these sort of like insurgent moments in our government. Um, where <laughs> wow. through. Yeah, through. And we have just decided to leverage that as best as we can to serve as many possible students. At first, our school was super hesitant. Um, our administration mm -hmm. was not. They they were like, that's great that that does that. But we're only talking about 15 to 20 people. Mm -hmm. And we're like, no, we could actually we did a capacity study internally and said we could probably get 600 students. Um, and that 600 turned into a thousand and a thousand, <gasps> 12 and 12 to 1500. You know, it just built over time through adopting all these different initiatives. So where the state says, hey, we'll we'll fund extra if you use open education resource textbooks versus the publisher $300 textbook yeah. for a three-unit course. If we use an open education resource and for constitutional law, that's not hard because constitutional law has been around for quite a while, right? Since the start of the country, the constitution is not anything proprietary. So we can have a, a good quality, credible textbook mm -hmm. that's free of charge. Mm. So with every initiative that the state has, we integrated that into the program. So by creating more opportunity with free textbooks, we could offer more courses. Mm -hmm. And so what we did is we aligned essentially every state initiative in higher education. And that's the kind of the surgical precision we used inside the program to say it was very strategic about how are we going to do this? We did power mapping. We, we have little sequester events where we like go off with three to four people and stay in a log cabin somewhere. And we just do this for a weekend and we figure out what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And when we get back, how are we going to message this to the rest of the school? You know, mm -hmm. who do we have to convince to let us do this kind of stuff and become change agents ourselves? That's what we had to do. Yeah, it really sounds strategic, right? Sort of understanding the system well enough to know how to use it for what you want to accomplish. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm sure that part of it is quite detailed, but interesting in its own way, how you navigate inside bureaucratic systems. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of really good books about it. Well, we we kind of we dubbed it the insurgency model ourselves because we just we had to see if we didn't have a committee like for instance to train our faculty. We we decided that mm -hmm. professional development and training was a huge component to going into the prisons, but there was no structural way to do that at our mm -hmm. school. And so we have in-service days where we do training, but it was kind of run by our administration at the time. So we had to go through our academic senate, which is kind of a professional matters. It's not a union, but it is our legislative body, if you will, for our mm -hmm. local school. And yeah. so we had to go 
that process to create a committee so that we could, which I hate committees, <laughs> but we had to mm-hmm. create a committee so that we could decide what would happen during in-service day. Mm-hmm. So that in-service committee, then we seated it with people so that we could dictate what happens on the daily agenda and provide that training that we needed as part of the regular structure of the school. And in that case, the committee didn't exist at all. So we had to create one. So we had to do that in every aspect at the school, every possible little stakeholder that might be involved, student services, counseling, Mm -hmm. educational planning, all that kind of stuff. We had to insert ourselves on these different committees throughout the school and kind of guide it towards one committee to which we also created that was kind of a first of its kind, which was this cross-functional, we had to work well with admin and faculty and admin, they don't always, you know, get, get along well together. Uh Um, It's, you know, zing to always throw an admin under the bus or something, you know, throw your Dean under the bus. But honestly, we had to, we, we decided we had to have a collaborative and a cooperative model to be able to work through these things. So mm-hmm. we created this committee that reports directly to the decision-making body of the college, which is called college council. So we sort of pulled that off in a little bit of a, in what we thought was a coup, but people were like, oh good, they're going to do that. And they're going to get out of our way and stop asking us for things. And <laughs> then once we did that, and then we were able to really, we could leverage all the tools the school has and all the resources towards improving, uh, you know, what happens for our students. And I, that's the part that jazzes me up. It's like, yes, I'm a teacher. I would tell that to somebody like at Starbucks, if they ask what I do, I'm a teacher. But in reality, teaching is like, just the small portion of what my job is, because as a college faculty, my responsibilities go way beyond. I have to advocate for students. I have to navigate these bureaucratic messes mm-hmm. and things like that. David Graeber is a great author, if anybody's interested in breaking through bureaucratic baloney. He uses many other words, but he, he's got great, great books, Utopia of Rules, Bullshit Jobs, The Dawn of Everything, very good books about how you can navigate that. And he's an anthropologist. So I was turned on to that from my uh, my buddy in anthropology, Alec Griffin, who's kind of my counterpart um, in letters and sciences. And we work together very tightly to sort of work on these things. Oh, yeah. It's really interesting what a, I don't know, what an intellectual level you're working on, because David Graeber's books are pretty, you know, they're pretty out there, right? Yeah, Uh for sure. They're out there. Uh And then we sit around at the pub, you know, and we figure out like, well, what the heck can we do? I mean, why are we creating committees to decide if we need a committee, right? Like this stuff drives me crazy. And I think deep down inside of me, I'm just, I, I don't want any of the the slop that comes with bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of, there's translatable components because we're running on survival mode all the time to do Mm -hmm. this type of education for our students. It's bare minimum, what we can provide, what we can do. So it has to be the best. And me, that's a component of duty as a public servant that, that should be my duty. But for some reason, we have these structures that exist in our state and any other state. I'm I'm not bagging on California specifically. Higher education in general has Mm -hmm. created these impenetrable bureaucracies Mm -hmm. um, that really need to be addressed. And I feel like this is awesome. So I, a little, there's a little anarchist behind this um, badge. Oh, yeah. Here, oh, I, right? can, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah like, I, I can tell. Them, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think David Graeber, if he were still alive, he would be very proud of the work that you're doing. And he would say that that was the opposite of a bullshit job. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, very good. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, have the goals of the program evolved over time? They have. We took a kind of a very intentional effort. Like you'd said before, it sounds very strategic. I guess in retrospect, it always sounds a lot nicer than it was at the time. It was more of like, okay, here's this problem and throw it down on the table and see what our very well-qualified peers that I work with are able to come up with, right? If I'm a policy person, because I work in an area that deals heavily in state law, policy, and legislation, shouldn't I know (laughs) how to manage some of this stuff, right? It's like activate those talents Mm. that we have inside of our subject matter expertise also. So yeah, in doing that, that was a little bit of that sort of is what pulled together a lot of the components about how we were able to manage it. So over time, it has changed from our initial thing was to scale a model program. That was our initial charge. And now our charge is converted a little bit more into like that of care, because we see this as a a bit of a care profession. Hmm. We have a lot of influence from social work in the work that we're doing inside the prison, frontline social, you know, field level social work and trauma-informed practices and responsive curriculum and things like that, the teaching practices and how we go about doing that. So I think that has changed. It's also changed in the field. Hmm. And what we used to be kind of the Wild West, I'm now, you know, the person who wants to establish some sort of a 
recurring training structure before going to the pub and talking for three hours was good enough training for all of us. And now I'm like, no, I want to integrate and institutionalize these components that in themselves work against the, that institution, you know, uh, to some degree. So I think that that has been a, a major change in the program over time. And the student voice has been the thing that's led us there. Uh. Students wanting to be involved. Last year, my my academic student of the year for administration of justice at our entire school was a guy that graduated inside of prison with the degree. And, you know, those kinds of changes, I never would have expected that to be a change when, when I first went in. Right. I looked at them to some degree reflectively. Now I look I looked at it as an ancillary group of students. It's a small cohort. It's going to be, you know, this little one off, basically somebody's pet project at some point. But it's turned into, you know, life changing, college changing, culturally changing for our own peer faculty, uh, as well as the students on campus are uniquely aware of the fact that they have peers that are inside of prison also. And they've come inside like our Phi Theta Kappa's Honor Society. They've run, they have to do a research project every year. So they've done cooperative research projects where we bring in 15 uh, kids from the traditional main campus and we bring them into the prison to sit down and, and do a research project that's student-centered. It has, let's just pretend prison doesn't exist for a second, yeah. you know, talk to them about what kind of project would you do? And people want to know, how do you choose a degree pathway? How do you choose this kind of stuff? It's a very student-based thing, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't really matter that you're in prison or not at that point, you know? And so that's what we've worked towards doing something like that. So I think that's changed and the program has evolved Mm -hmm. and it's going to have to evolve again. We have some major changes coming up. The work that's gone on over the last few years in this community in the state has directly resulted in a reduction of prison population. Oh. So the data is still sort of like not published, but it's over 80% who come through the college programs don't come back. Wow. Where the inverse is true. Yeah. If you don't attend a college program, about 80% of people come back to prison. Right. Within nine years. And so when we look at, you know, the impact we've made, we've taught 60,000 students over the last five years in, Dang. in the programs inside of the state you know, and 50,000 haven't come back. Right. So now all of a sudden we have prison closures and those prison closures will directly affect where our program is located. But to us, it's a, it's a kind of bittersweet. It's like, well, what's that my goal anyways? You know, like not necessarily abolition, but the reality that is if we do our job correctly, there will be less people to come back. (laughs) Mm -hmm, And from mm -hmm. a, from a criminal justice policy perspective, it's like, that would then result in too costly of facilities, which the government should close down to save taxpayer money. So, you know, if we're not going to run facilities at even 70% capacity, then we should be closing them down or something. And that's what's happening now. So this year, two prisons are closing uh, into this next year that was just announced in December and six different prison yards. Oh my um, gosh, I had no idea. Yeah. And so- We have the worst case law on record for California in overcrowding, right? Brown versus Coleman um, and Plata versus Brown, uh, both of those in 2008, 2009, were directly dealing with like access to medicine and mental health care inside of our California prisons. The reality was we were at 190% capacity. Sheesh. Yeah. And so I, I went in, I, when I was a police officer, I had to transport somebody because there was no one to come and pick this person up. So I had to transport them into a facility. And I, I was, I was stuck inside a Chino men's colony when, uh, when there was a big old riot that went down. But while I was there, I could see there was people four bunks high in the gym and not in housing. Right. And so now I get to look at it where it's like, Hey, they're on just a, you know, regular bunk bed. Mm -hmm. And it's been a, and I get to visit prisons up and down the state now going in and talking with these programs and helping them as well as in other states where we do some consulting. But the reality is it's made a significant structural change in our prisons. And we're reaping the benefits probably five to 10 years earlier than we ever thought. Wow. Isn't right? that awesome? So, yeah, yeah. Really validating in, in some of the work that we do. And it's not, oh, they're going out and they're just doing, it's these folks are the folks that are succeeding. They're the cream of the crop from inside. They're being given opportunity and they're going out and succeeding at it just, uh, you know, warms the heart, gives you goosebumps, all that kind of good yeah. stuff. Yeah, it doesn't get any better than that. Uh-huh. Yeah, basically. Uh-huh. Well, okay, so I've got about 25 questions running through my mind at once. So I'm going to ask the one I'm afraid I'm going to forget, even though it takes us back a little bit. I mean, as I'm thinking about all the hurdles that you faced over the last, well, probably longer than six or seven years, 
Were there moments when you just thought this is too hard? There are too many people saying, no, it's not, I, I can't make it work. Were there moments like that? Yeah. I, thank you for asking that question because that is something uh, turnover and burnout are super high in this particular field of instruction and oh. teaching like 30% plus within a year, perhaps sometimes oh. at some of the programs they're, they're, you know, if they have 10 faculty, they're going to lose three at the end of the year. Oh. Or the, those three are not going to continue to teach. And most of that is because of the barriers. It has very little to do with the students. I see. And I, like, I know this intimately. It has very, very little to do with the students. It has everything to do with the fact that you're constantly trying to abide by these conflicting rules. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Plus, it, I mean, it's a toxic environment. Even people that work there, it's a toxic environment. It, uh, the, a prison is the worst of humanity, right? We, A lot of people know that to be kind of true, but I am in it and I get to see it. It's hard to work there. It's hard to do anything um, in the prison environment and feel like everything's just fine in the world, right? So there is this vicarious trauma that mm. exists, and and I don't use the the T word trauma like loosely. Uh, there's real things I've 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 had experiences that have affected me physically or emotionally, right? Like right there in my classroom. I don't want to like scare people or anything like that, but there has been times where things go down on the yard, mm. right? Things go down inside of prison, and I'm an observer to this, yeah. or I'm very close to what is going on, mm -hmm. and so. That has it has a certain impact on people, and a lot of times you think, "Why, well, if we could just change this?" But then you're up against probably the most stringent and the most carved in stone system that we have in our California state or the the country, which is corrections. It's largely locally governed. There's very few actual rights based Supreme Court laws that uphold it. There, there's a lot of violations of constitutional rights that go on inside of there, not necessarily by the intention of everybody involved, but things happen. It's it's just a hard world. The custodial world is very difficult. I guess that's the nicest way I could say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that creates this, oh, I don't know if I want to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. I leave. We took that and I don't know why. I To this day, we we when we get asked this question, I can't tell you why this happened, but when I ran into Alec Griffin, who uh, instructs with me, um, he teaches anthropology. He's the other coordinator in our program, one of the other mm -hmm. coordinators. Mm -hmm. We hit it off. He came in as a brand new faculty. I was there for about a year. We hit it off outside of class one day on the walk back out of the prison, which is like, hey, what do you think about this that happened, right? And and a conversation began. And then about a year later, we looked back and we were like, perhaps us reflecting on this, which is not part of my normal, you know, emotional resiliency, has something to do with me being resilient to the way these things happen. So then we dove headlong in. We worked with the NYU Mc, uh, McSilver Institute of Poverty and Social Work. They came out and did a community of practice um, with us and nine other colleges in the state. And we developed sort of this community of practice that surrounds taking care of our faculty. Oh, And one of those things, like part of my dissertation, part of almost all of the consulting work that we do outside of the state is about navigating those problems. Mm -hmm. So we structure it in three tiers. We structure it systems, organizations, and individuals. The John Cotter model is another, you know, is, is a way about going. So you have to keep going. You have to develop urgency at the beginning. And then there's eight steps. And the last step is you have to keep going. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, that, that goes in my mm -hmm. brain often about you have to keep going. And if I'm running up against a wall and this thing seems impossible, mm -hmm. if I look at this framework and I say, but that's a systems level problem and it's affecting me at an individual level, I probably don't have the power uh -huh. personally to be able to change that issue. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's about, it's about identifying and kind of placing appropriately where these barriers come up and when those barriers come up, we teach faculty, it, this is how you can navigate it. And this is how you build resiliency to it. And then when you're pissed off enough, come join us at the table so that we can go and make policy change. Mm -hmm. So when they're rewriting the mission for the CDCR, for the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitations, randomly one day I walk in, I get an email that's like, hey, we're rewriting the penal code. What do you think? Oh, you wow. Know? Wow. This is, we're talking about the mission of the correctional system in our state. And I'm getting asked, what do I think about this mission? Yeah. Criminal justice and the work that I'm doing. And we edited and worked on the new penal code 1170, which determines and guides the mission uh, and the vision of 
the rehabilitation component of the prison system. So those are some of the things I got to have a, a very unique, you know, me and two to three other faculty were very privileged to be able to do that. To me, that outweighs all the barriers that I get mm-hmm. to do. I can look back and say like, hey, when they were trying to figure out how we do, how we change Title V education code, I got asked that question. Then I look at it and I go, is this replicable or is this just, you know, me being privileged in my position and all the rest of these things where this fell in line and I'm super lucky. And then I I think that there's been a little bit more than luck to it, right? There's intention about how we went about this. And when we look at it from a resiliency standpoint, that's what makes it. I go and I, we did this training down in San Diego just a couple of weeks ago. And there were these people that continued to bring up the same issue that I heard from the same people seven years ago. Uh Uh-huh. I'm like, you know, I love you. Get over your issue. (laughs) You have to be able to either address the issue or put it to the side, categorize it, and now move on. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's helpful because I had to respond to traumatic incidents in the field. And, you know, how do I deal with car crashes and, you know, violent incidents and things like that? I had to put it into a special drawer and say, I have to address that, but I have to do that later or I have to do it in this way. So that kind of way going about it has allowed me to be able to do that. But I also have to be super understanding. My wife will let me know, Hey, uh, you know, you're a little short with everybody in the house. And it might be because I'm, I'm just pissed off about the way, you know, that some captain on a yard decides that they're going to interpret a rule. And now all of a sudden my entire semester is thrown off, Mm -hmm. right. Or the way an administrator at a school or something like that works. And we get upset about these things, but how do we actually navigate them so that we can be effective change agents? That's the part that to me is like a creative outlet. Mm. And I would probably do other things, you know, like I, I used to do video production and things that I thought were fun through my hobbies as a creative outlet. And I've sort of let go of some of that stuff because mm. I'm like, this is intellectually engaging and creative. I mean, what's interesting to me about what you're doing is you're really using a lot of the professional power of academics to solve this real world problem, right? I mean, it's such a it's such a breakdown of the so-called ivory tower, right? I mean, you have yeah. a real world problem, right? Serious big right. time. Yeah. And so you just call on all of your, you know, your gang of <laughs> of smart people, right? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's, and our hope is to activate other people, right? And it's like, become this change agent within what you do. And you can do it in a lot of different professions. Had I had this experience when I was a police officer, I would have made major changes and differences in the way in which I went about being an employee, right? Mm. And I and I came up across this when I was working in the corporate world and realizing like the reward ratio was not there for me. Like the the money did not do and it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I was swimming. I wasn't like Scrooge McDuck in a swimming pool of coins or something. But it was certainly <laughs> that puts me at a certain, you know, exennial uh age bracket. But it it allowed me to kind of think about like that's not even worth fixing because the whole purpose oh. of right? The whole purpose of that thing is to drive working for a fortune 50 company. The purpose is to put dividends in the investor's pockets, right? Mm-hmm. End of story. You know, you could sell this product or or do this service and you could do something, but really that's the end purpose. So to me, it was something more about the, this, what is the root basis for higher education? How did it start? Mm. Why does it even exist in the first place? And what was the ultimate goal of it? And like you're saying, I don't know. We call it praxis. So it's like, here's all the theory, but why not apply it? And then, and then take that full agency that you have. I don't walk around on the street feeling like I'm being told what to do all the time because I have agency and I've developed um, kind of like a buffer space of agency within my role. Mm-hmm. In case my boss is listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your terms for your job are very interesting, <laughs> but I can see why you're successful, right? Because of the way you approach those problems. So you've touched on this, but I'll ask the question anyway, just to make sure I don't miss anything. What are the benefits of the program for the incarcerated people and also for society? Yeah. So I think we have to look at it from a, a variety of perspectives when I look at it. If it's a, to make you feel good, uh, not everybody feels good about this kind of program, hmm. especially the two prisons that we serve are in Kern County. The fire camp is in Inyo. So rural counties and the component that we're spending government money on these particular programs, it doesn't make everybody feel good. And I get that. I understand that component. So I think we have to split it into different ones. There's an economic benefit that's massive. We spend way too much and everybody agrees on either side of the aisle, down the middle, on the, you know, up in the mezzanine. Everyone agrees we spend way too much on prisons. So in this state alone, it's $14.6 billion a year. 
to crazy. That's just we, crazy. Yeah. We spend 15, a little bit more than 15 billion on all California community colleges, all CSUs, all UCs. Wow. And that serves something near 3 million students. Wow. And the California prison system at $14.6 billion serves now about 105,000 people. That's tiny. So, yeah, right. So our we have an economic imperative. Yeah. Um, this is it's unsustainable. Mm -hmm. So we have to do something. Uh, so that's one component. We have every dollar that we spend on education and higher education in prison saves four to five dollars outside. Uh -huh. I, I could give you chapters of research that demonstrates this. Rand put out a lot of really good research about it in 2013 and 2019 to kind of help galvanize the economic policy stand front, right? Vanguard area of economic policy. So it has to do with that. So it saves us in people staying inside a prison and that cost per person. It also increases. So they're about, and I'm going to throw some numbers out here, but they're about 40% more economically viable, if I could say it that way. That sounds, I don't like the way it sounds, but I'm, I'm going to go with it for now. They produce 40% more economically upon release. Yeah. So not only saving a lot, they're also doing a lot more when they get out. They're producing, yeah, as right. wor as workers, right, from an, Correct, yeah. from an economic system standpoint. Mm -hmm. Correct. And so those two things align very well. From criminal justice policy perspective, we're under direct orders from the federal government that we have to stay below a certain threshold of population. So from a legal and a legislative perspective, we must do this. Oh. There is no other option. If we do not scale effective rehabilitation programs, we will be taken over by the federal government. So there's that component. Then there's also the component of what are we doing to transform humans? And am I, And if I want to stay in the economic realm, that's a transaction. But in, in my realm, we're talking about transformation. So we are transforming human lives. And that is the essence of what happens in higher education or education in general. So I'm fulfilling the baseline purpose of what exists inside of education, right? This is the root reason we exist. Then there's the public safety component. For both the people that work inside the prison, there's a massive reduction. It's somewhere between 50 and 70%. The data is kind of out there. So there's about a 50 to 70% reduction in violent incidences inside of the prison facilities when uh, people are attending college programs or succeeding in college programs. And Ohio published a study in 2019 about their prison system. It looked at 92,000 people that had gone through over a period of about 12 years. So there is no other intervention that has that big of a reduction in prison violence inside prison. Then when you think about the criminal desistance inside, you can then apply that to outside. So when they get out and they don't come back, it means they're not violating those rules again. And in California, with some decriminalization or decategorization, you can at least say the majority of people inside a prison are violent. When they get out, if they're not going to commit violent offenses anymore and they don't wind back up in prison, you are having the most amount of impact on public safety. Mm -hmm. So from every single perspective, any side of the aisle or any any political component or from a straight abolitionist perspective, you know, or the anarchist perspective or something like that, it is doing what it needs to be doing. And now we have the data to support it after this many years. Right. We can turn around and we go, no, it actually it is working. It said it would work. But now it is working mm -hmm. and it is working because we're being true to what we have to do. And we have to the only way we can do that is to continue to allow the locus of control for these for rehabilitation educational programs to remain with the educational entity. We're working with a different state right now where mm. it's being taken over by the Department of Corrections and there is immediately a schism and the entire, you know, if I offer a product or a service of education that is now corrupted to some degree by the fact that it's run by a totally different entity without yeah. the same mission, vision, and values that I have at my place. Yeah, I can see that. So given that some of the prisons are closing, despite you know my perspective about this is fantastic. I mean, the results are so much greater and so much better than I expected, but I'm sure there is some pushback, right, from some factions. Yeah. So yeah, so who... Who is pushing back and how successful are they at pushing back? Um, well, I think we have to have an open mind perspective when it comes to places like uh, victims rights organizations and what are we doing if it leads to early release, which it does for many people. Mm -hmm. 
if they get good time credit, time off, things like that, are we undermining the justice system? And to address that component, I would look back at pre-crime control era laws. You know, a robbery sentence today is four times longer than it was in 1972. Oh, really? Yeah. So are we undermining victims' rights or are we simply do we need to have a a larger conversation about changing the perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Because we increase the rate of sentence and the length of sentence by by a huge degree Mm -hmm. over the crime control era from like 85 to 2005. And now we're in this thing where we're kind of resetting Mm -hmm. and we're resetting what those expectations look like. Life in prison used to mean somewhere between seven years and 10 years. That was a life sentence. It was called an indeterminate sentence. Today, you say life and people are thinking 25 to life, mm. right? That idea is has been eroded away because we're just, our generational amnesia has happened. Uh-huh. We, we can't look back and say, oh, well, in the 60s, a life sentence was seven years long. Yeah, because seven years in prison could be like, that could change your life, uh, you know, in a huge degree. Mm. It also was an open-ended sentence. So if the person shouldn't go back, they didn't. If the person could go back, they could. Uh-huh. And in our world, we changed it to kind of a determinate sentence, which was, no, you're going to stay for 25 years and be denied parole all the way until 25 years. Mm-hmm. Well, now we add to the cost. We add to medical bills. We mm-hmm. add to that. And then when the person leaves at 55 years old, what are they capable of producing economically? Nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, not to say 55-year-olds can't produce something, but mm-hmm. someone who's had their life removed for 25 years, right? Yeah. So these are some of the components we have to kind of struggle with. That's I would say that's one pushback area. On the other hand, the convincing argument is we're able to create a safer environment moving forward. So that is in the furtherance of victims' rights, that you don't have repeat offenders. The other part is things like unions, be it my own teaching union, who we've had to work very diligently with. They did not want us to go inside at the start. Now the president of our district teachers union works with me inside the facilities. So it's a very different world. Also the custody officers union, uh, which was is one of the most powerful in the entire state. They've driven some seriously erroneous policies, lacking data, driving hard on the emotional component of voting, the voting public. Mm. That's the facts of it. Whether it's nefarious or not is a different discussion. But the reality is when we go in, we we say, hey, here's the schedule. We can create a situation where we can give you two more bidded positions with overtime per yard per day for 16 weeks. So you have to speak to the audience, right? And that audience they hear is, wow, my union can now offer more overtime positions, pay my people more and give them a better idea. All those people that opted in to get the money are the ones standing in the back of of the graduation ceremony, crying tears as custody officers for the guys graduating inside now, changing their lives too. So mm-hmm. as we've seen this happen, that immediate emotional pushback has begun to uh, wane quite a bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, my hat is really off to you, Peter, for what you've been able to do here, how smart you've been about yeah, how, how to get this through and be so successful. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience? Is there any resources you'd like to direct them to? Or are you doing any fundraising or anything you'd like for them to know? Well, we uh, we just authored a chapter in a book um, that's coming out in November with oh. Bloomsbury Publishing, um, who did Harry Potter. So that made my kids really happy. Um, but <laughs> You're right there with Harry yeah. Potter. We did a chapter that talks about this professional development, professional learning component and structure. It would be a very interesting read. We're globally, as a community, um, we're beginning to expand. So it's a global group of authors who do this work. Mm -hmm. And we kind of connected together as a community of practice. And now we're pulling, the book is being pulled together as a diversified voice from around the world of people that are doing this type of work. The other thing is we're a local institution and we need local support. And everything that benefits a student, even if they're inside a facility, or inside of a prison can benefit students that are not in the prison too. Mm. So understanding this from a perspective of a little bit of a rising tide, you know, floats all boats Mm. to overuse that saying, but the component of if our school does the right things for education and it helps one group of students, it helps other groups of students. We have seen that happen. You know, I'm working on a forestry program now for wildland firefighter training that we just started. It took two years to develop, but we just started it. The impetus to that, that we serve a prison fire camp. And now we're running those classes outside in Bishop and in uh, Tehachapi right now. And so just remembering that we're a local institution that's here and that we best serve you when people are involved. 
Mm. Right. And so being involved with us as a local institution allows us to create the programs that everybody wants as best as we can. Um, As diversified as the 18,000 square mile geographic area that we have, we want to serve students, but we need people's input. We need the public to work with us. Mm -hmm. That's what I would have to say. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, as I say, I'm I'm so impressed with what you've accomplished. Yeah, good for you. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. No problem. I, I'm representing a lot of people here on this call, so I, I'm glad to be the one, I guess, that gets to yap on the on the call. But on the other hand, there's a lot of other people that are out there. I'm not the only one. So keep that in mind for any of the people listening. There's a lot of people doing very good work out there, and I appreciate the time. Thank you so much, and good luck with your class tonight. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode and give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon and get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.